My name is Jack. I'm Bethany Northeast's lead pastor. And this morning we're, well, first of all, it's great to see a number of new faces and meet some folks and even see a number of faces I haven't had a chance to see much this summer. Many who, who have places in beautiful parts of the state or vacation. And um, I've been on vacation the last couple of weeks. And so uh, good to reconnect with some of you and have this chance to be up here. We're continuing a series called Summer Shorts that we've been in all summer, and this is a series in case you haven't been with us. We're kind of looking at some of the shorter books of the Bible. So Minor Prophets, actually we're finishing up the Minor Prophets today with the book of Malachi, which is the last book in the Old Testament. Super easy to find. Just go to Matthew and go back a page. Um, and then next week we're going to be in some of the shorter letters at the end of the Old or New Testament. So there you have it. And so you can turn to Malachi. It'll be a kind of 30,000 foot view for part of the message this morning. Then we'll get into a little bit at the end. But let me take a moment to pray first and then we'll dive in. God, thanks for this opportunity we have to just pause in our morning and in our week to um, come into your word together in community. Uh, we know this is for many of us a time uh, where, where we want to open our hearts to what you're saying to us, but there's a lot of noise around us. There's noise in the room. There's the noise of our lives. Um, so we do ask your spirit to, to quiet our hearts, God, to receive from you all you have for us. We know you desire good things for us, God, and we just need to have open hands and open hearts to receive them. So open our hands and hearts to you this morning, we pray, Jesus. Amen. Well, it's... Um, it's pretentious and a little bit cliche to begin a sermon this way, but I will with a Ben Franklin quote. Uh, he was very quotable. He says this at one point in his life, there are three things extremely hard, steel, diamonds, and then to know oneself. Uh, he also is the one who asked the question, what do um, house guests and fish have in common? You know this one? They both begin to smell after three days. Yeah, so he's that guy, but seriously, philosophers, I love that you knew that, Jamie. Um, <laughs> philosophers have just long pondered this question, who are we, haven't they? I mean, this is a ex big existential question. Aristotle, one of those philosophers, he said that we could find the answer to that question by way of our habits. So he said this, we are what we, we repeatedly do. So the power of habit, there's books about that. Rene Descartes, he, had, he thought the answer could be, is lodged in our intelligence, our ability to sort of think through things. So he said, cogito ergo sum, I think, therefore I am. So you can figure out who you are by way of uh, just sitting down and thinking <laughs> in some way. The German philosopher Martin Heidegger said that we, who we are is revealed in our relationships. So he said that everyone is the other and no one is him or herself. You are all each other. You're bound together. Uh, and then for the Austrian-born British philosopher Ludwig Wittgenstein, he said there's no logical answer to that ridiculous question because the question is flawed in the first place. He said this, the only answer to the riddle of life is the disappearance of the question itself. It's a meaningless question. So how would you answer that question? Who are you? You know, many of you would answer with your name. You'd tell, we, have, we do a lot of baby dedications here. We have parents often share the story of their child's name. There's significance to our names. Uh, we might tell a little bit of our family story or our journey of faith. We might, many of us in the United States would talk about what we do for work as a way of revealing who we are. We talk about our children and how they're a reflection of who we are. Who are you as you're sitting here this morning? I want you to be thinking about that. Our staff, uh, Bethany, all Bethany's staff, is reading a book this summer called You Are What You Love. It's by the theologian James K. Smith, and 
he, uh, the subtitle is The Power of Spiritual, uh, the Spiritual Power of Habit. So, love, it's been a great book to read, but he says the basic premise of his book is that if you want to discover or know who you are, uh, look at what you love, your desires, your longings, your hungers. And here, let me just read a little quote for you, because it's been a really helpful book for me in thinking on this question. To be human, Smith says, is to be animated and oriented by some vision of the good life, uh, some picture of what we think counts as flourishing. And we want that. We crave it. We desire it. This is why our most fundamental mode of orientation to the world is love. We are oriented by, by our longings. We're directed by our desires. We adopt ways of life that are indexed by such visions of the good life, not usually because we think through them as Descartes said, uh, but rather because some picture captures our imagination. Then he uses this illustration from The Little Prince. Who's read The Little Prince by Antoine de Saint-Exupéry? I know I'm mashing that up badly for the French speakers. But this is what the Exupéry says. If you want to build a ship, don't drum up people to collect wood and assign them tasks to do the work. Rather, teach them to long for the endless immensity of the sea. Isn't that interesting? And then Smith goes on and says, we aren't really motivated by abstract ideas or pushed by rules and duties. Instead, some panoramic tableau of what looks like flourishing has this alluring power that attracts us and draws us toward it. Then he goes on to say that that's why we live our lives toward that goal. We get pulled into a way of life that seems to, to be the way to arrive in the world. Such a telos, which means purpose, works on us, not by convincing the intellect, but by allure, by allure. So I, I guess I'd ask you this morning, who are you? What's alluring you right now? What's getting out of bed in the morning? Uh, what, what's drawing you forward each day? Uh, I mean, do you want to know who you are? Look at what you love. That's what Smith is saying. And, and so the story of Israel, as we look at the prophet Malachi, it actually challenges us very obliquely, but, but it's really interesting to reflect on this idea of who we are by way of what we love. Uh, who we are as we sit here today, uh, you know, what animates our, what, what's our vision for life? What are our desires and passions and how does that connect with who we are? Uh, and interestingly, it challenges us to do, though, do that by aligning our lives, how you're living today, with your loves but, and closing this gap between your lives and your loves, between how you're created, what you've been created for, and then how you're actually living your life today. Because if you're if you're like me, if your life is like my life, or if your lives are at all like the lives of those living during Malachi's day, who you are today, how you're living your life, is not aligned perfectly with what you love, with your desires. And therefore, you're not living out who you are. Uh, in other words, how we're actually living, how we're going about our day days, not the days you put on Instagram and Facebook, but like the most mundane if you can just picture the most mundane, regular, working, worrying, driving in traffic, obsessing over your to-do list, looking at your balance sheet, those days, like the ordinary days, the average moments of marriage, the exhausting moments of parenting, of seasons of failure, exhaustion, confusion, boredom, those days, those days are typically not li lined up with our vision for our lives. There, there's a huge gap between the two. And so the question on the table for us as we look at Malachi is how do we close that gap? How do we align our lives with our loves? And we're going to look at this book from a 30, kind of a 30,000-foot view at first, and then we're going to look at a very granular, granular level. And you'll see it's kind of broken up, as I outlined it, in, into sort of three acts with three corresponding themes and characters. So we'll just kind of break it down that way. So act one's kind of that 30,000-foot view, okay? 
And so go ahead and follow along. It's Act 1 begins in chapter 1 and goes through chapter 3. And I'm just going to give you a real high-level view of this. And its actors and themes are simply this, that many, those are the actors in Act 1, love a good story. The theme is they love a good story. The many of Israel, okay? And this theme can really only be understood with a bit of context. So here's the context. I'm going to set this. It's going to spend a little time on this because you read these prophets and you're like, what in the world? <laughs> you know, it's really bizarre stuff. And you really need to understand the context. So Malachi, his prof- prophetic career actually happened right after Zechariah, who comes right before him in the Old Testament, okay? And he's known in scholarly circles as what's uh, called a post-exilic prophet, okay? So he prophesied to Israel after their return to this, from this 50-year time of exile in Babylon. They spent 50 years from 587 B.C. to 538 B.C. in, in Babylon under the reign of um, Nebuchadnezzar. And that came to an abrupt end when Cyrus, who's the king of Persia, the conquering king of Persia, overthrew Babylon in the year 539, and he granted freedom to all the captives of Babylon. Said, hey, go home. Take up your gods, take up your possessions and your families, and just go home. And so the Israelites began to go home to Judah and to Jerusalem. And so in 538, the the return of some, not all, but some of the the first exiles began to happen. Um, And yet, uh, you can read about that in 2 Chronicles 36, Ezra is all about this. And yet, according to the record... (laughs) If you read the historical record of this, they are this really tiny community of people. Just a remnant is what the Bible calls them. And they're facing enormous problems. So the nation of Israel was then, if you look at it geographically, only about 20 miles long and 25 miles wide. It's a really small nation with only about 150,000 people left to it. So it had been decimated. So the population, many of whom were poor now, they've been landless, they were very poor. They're facing this rebuilding kind of process. And it's of epic proportions, 50 years of neglect. Like think of not working in your house for 50 years and then multiply that by hundreds of times. So there's the wall is broken. The, the temple is in, in ruins. There's, the fields are just weeds and dust. They've been raided and, and, and ransacked. And so they're, they're, they have to come back to that. It's not a pretty picture. And then they're also being uh, resisted by some of the inhabitants of the land, specifically the Samaritans. So, you know, this Jewish Samaritan conflict that we read about throughout the New Testament, that's really rooted in this time. They had kind of backfilled Israel, the Samaritans, and then, you know, Jews decided to come back. (laughs) It's our land. So there's this kind of war between them. And then to add insult to injury, the harvests, the early harvests in those days were disappointing to say the least. So they're hampered by drought, pests, blight. I mean, like it's classic kind of Seattle tomato season. So which meant that poverty was just widespread. There was really little food, deep systemic issues with famine, growing inequities between rich and poor, and then they're really dependent on their neighbors for survival, for imports, and they have no way of paying for those, so they're in debt. All this is to say, though they're home, Israel's come home, they're as vulnerable and impoverished as they ever have been. Um, And so the great hopes of these late 6th century prophets, Zechariah and Haggai, like if you read those books, very hopeful. I almost have a problem with them because (laughs) their hopes are are what some might call pipe dreams. Um, Hopes that began to give way to a profound sense of disillusionment and despair by the time Malachi comes along. There's this 20-year period where they're rebuilding the city and nothing is happening. And this is Malachi's time. 
So these auspicious prophecies of Haggai and Zechariah had, had placed such a, a great emphasis on the early stages of restoration. Like we're going to have a, a temple and a wall and prosperity and wealth and military success and political influence. Like incredible prophecies if you read these. They put such emphasis on that that when you come to the time of Malachi, when none of that is happening, they're going the opposite direction. They're in decline. Those prophecies seem like God's mocking, mocking them in some ways. Like, ha I was just kidding. I mean, is this making sense to you, kind of this context? And so many in Israel had come to love a good story. It's a good story. It's like a blockbuster movie in the summer. It's not really real. You know, it's just transformers. It's not reality. It's reality TV maybe, but they, they loved a particular story of triumph, a particular story of deliverance, a particular story of the good life, a good vision. It's a good story, but it's just a particular version that they kind of concocted in their minds. And, and when that version of their story doesn't unfold or map out the way they expect, many, what, this is the irony, is they begin to sort of tumble into this state of cynicism and apathy and disillusionment and even despair. So verse 14 of chapter 3 that Erica read for us, what's the use in serving God? Like, what's the point? Uh, what, what have we gained by obeying, being faithful to God's command, trying to show God that we're sorry for our sins and go back and do this thing. I mean, you can kind of see these people in effect as saying, God doesn't seem to care about us anymore, so why should we care about God? What's the point? Which highlights a really poignant irony to this tragic story in Israel at the end of the Old Testament. You see, one bright spot in this kind of context that I'm laying out for you is that though they, though they had uh, been accused of and were guilty of idolatry throughout most of their history, they apparently had abandoned the practice of idolatry beginning with their return from exile. So they go back to Jerusalem, rebuild the temple, and they, they no longer have idols. They are faithful, you might call them faithful Christians, <laughs> going to church, attending a Bible study, reading their, having their quiet time. And you can figure this out by, by not only the, the lack of reference to idolatry in Malachi, which is the only prophet that addresses idolatry. All the other prophets, idolatry, idolatry, idolatry. Malachi never mentions it. His contemporaries who are Ezra and Nehemiah about the, the rebuilding of the temple don't talk about idolatry. There's a complete absence of a record of idolatry, ar archaeological absence, in the history of Israel after exile. There's no, there's no idols found in the dirt. And so the practice of idol worship, which had so often corrupted them in the past, this is why God punishes them many times. If you read the Old Testament, it's because of their idolatrous behavior. It's gone. You'd think, man, this is going to be the new golden age, right? And so this post-exilic period that you'd think is going to be like renewed vibrancy, or renewed orthodoxy, vibrant faith. And yet, that's not the case. What's the use, God? What, what have we gained, really, from obeying you, from killing, like breaking all the idols up? What have we gained from that? Nothing. We're worse now than we were then. So it's an apathetic sentiment that I think is reflected in the people of Malachi's time. So you read Malachi. It's these people that go to church, like I said, on Sundays, uh, and yet they're only doing it for the sake of doing it. Like th their worship is, is half-hearted at very best. And at the worst, it's a complete show. So Malachi, for example, Malachi 2.13, God, if you read it, God indicts them for covering the altar with tears. Like imagine coming up here during the worship set and just, you've seen this, 
flailing about, crying, big show. Which simply means, as you kind of interpret that, that though they're worshiping in the Jewish temple instead of a pagan temple, they're not going to the pagan temples. They're singing the old songs. You know, they're reading their Bibles again. They're doing so in this old pagan style. See, the pagans believed they could influence God with just a little extra emotion. Like God could be manipulated in some way. Like, kind of like your kids might try and influence you for that quart of ice cream, you know, just rolling the aisles <laughs> or that toy at Target. Like you just, you have to give in because you don't want to, you don't want to be that parent, right? And they believed this could, you could do this with God. Just put a little extra emotion into your worship, loud displays of emotion, demonstrate the earnestness of your desires, and somehow God's going to respond to that. And so it's this, it's phony, it's this slovenliness in their religious life that as you read the rest of the book, uh, begins to play on their family life. Their, their families are just dysfunctional. Marriages are full of this unforgiveness, uh, animosity against their kin. There's a complete lack of generosity as you read through the book. They're, they're, God says, you're literally robbing from me. <laughs> uh, there's a scarcity mentality, you might say. There's a widespread failure of the people in Malachi's time to honor God in practical life. They're saying, what's the point in doing all those things? We can show up and just kind of go through the motions, but why really mean it? And so while not making sacrifices to these foreign gods, they're essentially practicing idolatry. It's just they're doing it with their hearts instead of their actions. And here's what I mean by that. So Tim Keller, he's a pastor in New York City that I've, I've long followed, and I quote him all the time, I know, but he wrote a book about idolatry a few years ago called Counterfeit Gods. How many of you have read at least parts of that book? Good. Uh, he says that when most people think of idols, they have in mind these literal statues. Or you think of like a, the next pop star, you know, that Simon Cowell anoints, right? And, and while there are literal idols in our culture and literal statues even today, uh, traditional and while idol worship, traditional idol worship, persists. Uh, really, what idol worship is, this is Keller, is internal worship with your heart. And that is, that's universal. Here's a quote. He, he takes Ezekiel 4.13, 14.3, says that God says these men in Israel's time have set up idols in their hearts. He says it, this is an indictment in which God says that the human heart is prone to taking good things, like a successful career or love or material possessions or family or a powerful vision for the future in Malachi's time. Really powerful vision. Taking that and making that into an ultimate thing. Good things, making them ultimate. Here's Keller. Our hearts deify created things. Uh, good things. And we make them the center of our lives because we think they can give us significance and security and safety and fulfillment if we just attain them. So you can see these people wanting to attain the vision of the good life. And they've, they've made it into their God, their functional God. If we get there, then we'll be obedient to God. But if we don't, what's the point? Because God's not coming through. So the, the real heart of idolatry, did you hear this, is, is expressed in Malachi's time by taking good things, making them ultimate, relative things, attaching infinite value to them, taking something like a vision for the future, as good as it might be, and just making this absolute sort of claim on it. It has to turn out this way. We've got a poster of hope. It's got to be that or it's nothing. You get what I'm saying? And so this is how it works for us. You take an expectation of how life's going to play out. You pin everything on it. And if it doesn't play out, if those things don't materialize, you know, if I don't reach that level of income, if I don't get that job, 
if I don't meet that person, if I can't buy that house, if this political figure doesn't get into that office, I'm out. And this is what happens <laughs> to us when that happens. When our deepest longings aren't fulfilled, we, like they, we often sink into this state of apathy and cynicism and despair, saying things like, if I can't have it, man, my, heart, my life would hardly be worth living. If God doesn't seem to care about us, we're been, we've been faithful, why should we care about anything else, right? What's the use in serving God, obeying His commands, when life isn't adding up? Who's listening anyway? Like worship, I mean, it's just cheesy songs. What does that mean anyway? Oceans. Like we sing that, what does it mean? Uh, or these offerings, like we did serve Sunday last Sunday, we do VBS this week. It's not really making an impact in the city. This is the heart of a cynic. Like, why does it matter that I do that? I'll show up, I'll put on the work gloves, but really, that's not significant, ultimately. See, do you see it? <laughs> idolatry isn't about statues. It, it's the practice of idolatry is about your heart. And it's just as problematic in Malachi's day as it was in previous generations that they'd given it up functionally, and it's just as problematic today as it was then. Uh, you see, the gap in their lives between what they said they believed and how they're actually living, it mirrors the gap we're facing in our lives today. Like, so do you want, remember the question, do you want to align, learn to align your life with how you, with your loves? Like, how you're really living your life with what you really long for, what you really desire? Uh, the first thing Malachi would teach you and me is begin to identify what you truly love and not just sort of your puppy love, but what's really down in the depths of your heart. If you really go down there, I mean, good fishermen know that the good fish are deep, deep in cold water. Your, your true loves are deep in your heart, deep in your heart. And if you really want to align your life with your loves, you need to go down there. So is your love a vision for the future? Is it a certain status in your career? Is it a quality of life for you and your kids? We love our quality of life here in Seattle. Love our parks, love our schools, except for this week, love our weather. Uh, is it influence? Is it money? I mean, what is it for you? Malachi challenges you and me, I'm in the boat, to the hard work of identifying your true loves and then beginning the harder work of uprooting those things and dealing with them in the light of Christ and saying, if it's not rooted in Christ and Christ alone, God needs to shatter that. He needs to tear it from your life. Um, and do work on that. That's, the, that's kind of the hard word in Act 1, chapters 1 to 3. It's a great play. So we'll move to Act 2, okay? It's like a Shakespearean thing. Act 1's never fun, okay? So think about this as we're moving to Act 2. How do you respond when the story of your life doesn't map out the way you planned? This is how you can identify what's really down there. Like, how are you responding when you're expectations aren't met. Is it with bitterness? I mean, is it with eh, cynicism? Uh, how do you respond when your hopes for the future are shattered? Is it with just utter despair? Uh, when your expectations like in your marriage, in your career, in our politics aren't met? In our church, there's no perfect church this side of heaven. When we don't meet your expectations, how do you respond? Is it with anger? Frustration? I mean, as you, if it's with open-handedness and grace, then likely that's not an idol. But if, it, if it's with cynicism, disillusionment, apathy, a sort of who cares-ism, just checking out, you likely have touched an idol. <laughs> and, and it's gripping your heart, and it's become your functional God, 
And that cannot sustain you. It cannot bear up the weight of your life. And God would want you to deal with that. Okay? So that's act one. Welcome to church. <laughs> okay, act two. This is a lot. The rest of this is much more, much more encouraging. So it begins in chapter three, and we read this. It's actors and theme are simply this, that some, so you have the, the many that love a good story, some in Israel love an old story, okay? So there's a small minority. We're going to zoom in a bit rather than flying it to high level over Malachi. We're going to focus on a few verses. So you can open to chapter three, kind of verse 16. Remember this question what I asked, that I asked you. How do you align your life with your loves? Especially if you're in the boat with me and these folks in Malachi experiencing doubt and boredom and apathy. Like, what do you do, right? If you're there. And so the answer can be found in verse 16, beginning in verse 16 of this story where it switches gears. You have a new kind of group here. Um, and the second group is this minority group. They're described as those who fear the Lord, okay? And they're doing something so basic yet so fundamental. Verse 16 those who fear the Lord, I'm just going to read it, they spoke with each other and the Lord listened to them. Literally, the word for listen is responded. So God, you can imagine God turning around and then engaging in conversation with them. Uh, in his presence, then they wrote a scroll of remembrance with their names, uh, the names of those who feared him and always thought to honor his name. So did you hear what they did? It's so basic. They spoke to each other. <laughs> like, it, like it's so easy we miss it. Uh, and that's really, that's the point here. The, the, the other group are, are not engaging in relationship in the way we're designed to. Uh, they're maybe going to church and leaving before they can ever have a conversation. They're not in community. These folks are having just good old-fashioned conversation. Good old-fashioned conversation. The Hebrew word here, it's really fascinating. It's, it's a multivalent word. Um, it can mean to discuss something, like you'd think, like to talk amongst yourselves like the church lady from Saturday Night Live. Um, so that's, what's, you know, you're in, your, you're in your community, you're talking about what's going on, all the implications, you're coming up with a game plan. It's like a family meeting. How many of you guys have family meetings? Yeah, this is what's happening. It can also mean to consider, here's the second part of the definition, to relate to what's going on to the wider story or collective story of your culture. So it's rooted in this ancient Near Eastern story tradition, oral tradition in their culture. So they didn't have Bibles like this. They're, they had scrolls, but you'd have a guy that gets up there and sings the song of Isaiah or Psalm 121 or whatever it would be. And then it's an it's a, it's a oral tradition. And so that oral history, it, there's a really important nuance to this because it has to do with what they do next. So that it says in verse 16 that they, they decide to write, write down on a scroll of remembrance all their names. And this scroll of remembrance, is a, it's a really important moment as we think about how to close that gap down between our lives and our loves. So what this is, is it's a book, the book of remembrance, according to scholars, it's, it's what's called a covenant renewal document. It'd be like your marriage license or, or when you signed that marriage certificate at, at your wedding. You know, uh, you put your names on it. You had your witnesses there. You did that. You see them doing this again in Ezra and Nehemiah, put all their names on this document. And there's it's signatures, signatories, sorry about the noise, <laughs> but they're, they're, they're committing themselves to God in faith. They're saying, uh, they're, they're disassociating themselves from the, the kind of sinful, the complacent, cynical majority of Israel. And they're saying, hey, we're, we're not going to live like the rest of those folks. We reject that who cares mentality. Uh, we're going to recommit ourselves to God's covenants, God's ways. We care not sort of we don't care, but we care. 
And so we're re-enlisting ourselves uh, in this minority group in a way that the, their contemporaries would not do, okay? And specifically, they're re-enlisting themselves in this idea that they're the chosen people of God, okay? So again, oral story tradition. Um, they're doing what had been done for generations. So they put their names, think of like the Declaration of Independence. They put their names on this document, but above that is kind of this story of their history. They would have written out, we were slaves in Egypt. We were slaves in Babylon, and now we're free. And what they're doing is they're, they're putting themselves back into God's story. Uh, they're saying, we're not passive observers of this story. Don't just read my Bible, sort of take notes, application, you know. They'd say, no, we're active participants. We're called to be engaged in this salvation history. So I, want, I once read that Jewish people, even today, they, more than anything, they are people of memory, okay? More than anything. So one of the most repeated commands in the Old Testament is the command to remember or declaration command. Uh, you'll see God saying, remember that you were slaves in Egypt and therefore rest. Remember that God rested. Remember all these things. You read the Psalms. Remember how I've, I've freed you. I've been a part of your lives. Um, and, and one interesting way this role of memory plays out in Jewish families, even today, is, on the, is in their annual celebration of the Passover. So during a Passover liturgy or Seder meal each year, even today, if you've ever been to one, uh, Jewish families, they'll sit down, have the meal, and then they'll, they'll declare the words of the Avadim Hayinu <laughs> to each other, which is a song with one line in it. And here's the line. We were once slaves to Pharaoh, and now we're free. I mean, this is 21st century. This isn't back then. And, they t and then they tell each other, you know, if you have an old grandmother who was alive during World War II, tell each other the story of the Holocaust. Or if it's today, tell each other their story of immigrating to America um, and overcoming hardship. And what they're doing there is they're saying, we are part of this story of God. And that story is continually being written. And we're writing our own chapter in the Exodus story. We're not just passive observers of the story. We are part of it. Uh, we were slaves in Egypt. Not they, but we. It's not their story. It's our story. And this is this is what's happening in the book of remembrance, in the book of Malachi here. It's not, in other words, it's simply enough just to remember, retell the story, but we need to be involved in it somehow. And, and we need to project ourselves into it, say, hey, my name is on this, this scroll now. I am part of this new story, this new chapter. Remember that I was a slave. In fact, I'm in bondage to old patterns of thought if I'm living in Malachi's time. I'm addicted to certain behaviors. I have an idolatrous heart. I need to break with that. We need, I need freedom. So that's the second dimension of this word to d discuss amongst themselves. But there's one more that is really important, okay? And it, they relate, but it, this word can also mean to lead or to guide each other. So it means to just talk. It means to also kind of tell the story of God, but it means to then lead and guide each other. In other words, it's this shepherding word. Uh, literally, they would use it, if you can imagine, like we'd say to discuss or talk, but they'd say they'd, it's like what Jesus does with the sheep in the book of John, to point or steer an animal like a cow or a, or a goat or whatever to a place of refuge, okay? And it, that's fascinating, isn't it? I mean, to think of talking amongst yourselves as, as not just liberating yourself from an, an old or a current story of bondage, you know, experiencing freedom, but then also guiding each other toward, toward a place of refuge. It's never enough just to go free. You also need a place you can call home. 
That's the point here when they begin to talk to each other. So as you tie that together, you know, they're, they're telling the story of God and they're saying, here's our new home. Uh, let's guide each other there. As you tie it together, the question for us is, who are your shepherds? Who, who do you have in your life that you're gathering with? It might be just a really faithful minority where you're hearing the old story of God's work. Uh, people that are telling you the story of God, reminding you of who God is, reminding you of who, what God's done, and reminding that you're part of God's story. That you're not, that God's not just working above you and beyond you, but God's working within you and around you. Uh, see, what Act 2 of Malachi reminds us is that we, what we need is we need to surround ourselves with people who speak to us, discuss with us, and declare to our hearts God's truth. That God is good. That God is gracious. That God is great. That God will overcome the sin that is besetting your life. That God will overcome your addiction, your despair. I mean, if it's apathy for you, God will overcome that. If it's a physical ailment, God's going to overcome that because God has always done that. That's God's work. Do you believe that? You need people in your life that declare belief to you. That's all. <laughs> That's what this is about. Say, we believe, let's continue to live in belief. This is why, I'm just going to do a little promo here. We push groups at Bethany all the time. You hear us talk about groups. We want you in a group, whether it's a group of like four to six people, a little Bible study, or one of our neighborhood groups, which are chaotic messes, I know, but people that are committed to you in your life beyond Sunday, committed to the sort of every day, the warp and the woof, you know, like that see your kids and know the mess in your family and hear about your work. You know, you sit around in the backyard and have a beer and like realize it was not a good day. Uh, that go through your struggles with you, that say, hey, I'm going to speak truth in your life. You give me permission, and that truth is truth and grace. We need those people. And so that's what, what happens with this small group of people, and they, and you, they begin to bridge the gap between who, what they love and how they live, because they just do that. They just talk to each other. Are you talking to anybody? You know, if you're not, if you're, if you're feeling isolated, begin here. Come talk to me. I would love to help you connect here and then beyond here, okay? So that's Act 2. Act 3, real quick, uh, it's actors in theme. It has to do with these promises that are available to us when we both begin to deal with our idols and then engage in sort of community. And those are revealed in, in the beginning of chapter 4. It's a real short chapter at the very end. Um, and the actor is really merely just simply God. And the theme is, well, I'll read the, the verse for you, but, and you'll hear the theme. Uh, here's verse 2 of chapter 4. You who fear my name, the son of righteousness, will rise with healing in his wings, and you'll go free, you'll, and you'll leap with joy like calves out to a pasture. So here's the promises. The actor's God, and the promises are, are healing, freedom, and joy. Those are always God's promises for us. God loves healing, freedom, and joy. Um, but here's the key, and it's really fascinating little detail that you'll miss if you're just reading the English. It's that verse that he, the son of righteousness will rise with healing in his wings. Isn't that like a poster from a dentist office? Like many of you have no idea because they use TVs now, but like there used to be these posters for some of us, like with puppies on them. And then there'd be like a Bible verse. Remember that? Some of you are smiling because you know, and they put stuff. It's so corny, like healing in his wings. What does that even mean? Right? Uh, the word is fascinating because it, it can mean the wing of a bird or an angel. It's that. So there is that piece to it. But it's also a word that, that, has, that means the corner of a, like a, if you have like a robe or a, a skirt, if some of you are wearing skirts, 
the, the edge of that, the hem of that, like the hem of a garment. Now, here's why that's significant. I'm going to switch gears a little bit. In all th three of the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, uh, there's this story. And so it must have happened. Sometimes one gospel has a story. There's debates. Did it happen or didn't happen? This story happens in all those gospels. Uh, there's this woman who came to Jesus for healing. And you know this story. She's been bleeding. She has a, the problem of bleeding for 12 years of her life. And so here's how the story goes. She happened to be walking. Jesus happened to be walking toward a man named Jairus' house. Uh, Jairus had summoned him there. He's a leader because his daughter's dying. And this man knows that Jesus can heal people. So does the woman. She's heard that Jesus has the power to heal. And there's this crowd pressing in on Jesus as he's walking to Jairus' house. And she says to herself, as she enters into this crowd, and by the way, problem of bleeding for 12 years, you can't go to crowds. You can't go around people. You are, you are as isolated as you can be. Uh, she says, if I can just touch his clothes, I'll be healed. Uh, and so she makes her way through this crowd. Remember how this goes? This crushing crowd of people, they're pressing in on Jesus from all sides. And she does this, that. She reaches in the Gospel of Luke, reaches from behind him. It's, it's the best she can do from behind Jesus and manages to just touch the edge of his cloak. You might just say that the hem of his garment. You see where I'm going here? And immediately, not days later, immediately her bleeding stopped. Now, commentators on the story, there's so much more that happens in the story, but commentators in the story suggest that, that Jesus, as an observant Jew and as a rabbi, would have been wearing this outer garment. You see a lot of Jewish people wearing these shawls today with tassels all over them, right? You've seen these with like blue, white, white shawls with blue threads through them. And uh, actually what it is, is there's these, these tassels, there's four tassels on the garment that have all these little knots woven into them. And the knots represent different laws in the Torah, which is the Jewish law, as well as stories of God's deliverance, different scriptures with promises. You just tie knots in them. So an observant Jew would, would, would often be walking, and you'll see even in prayer at the, at the wailing wall in Jerusalem, uh, they'll cover their heads with this shawl, and those tassels will be over their face, or they'll be walking with those tassels in their hand as a way to, guess what? Remember the story of God. They're not going to walk around with this big Bible, especially in those days, these big scrolls. It's a way to remember, actively participate, remind themselves of God's saving deeds. To say even, it's a wearable book of remembrance, you could say. And a way in which Jesus and then other Jews of his day could just visibly, tangibly remember who God is, what God had done, and what God promised to do through him. You get where I'm going? So this woman, she... I don't know why she touches Jesus' garment, but she seems to know this. At least she seems to know this, this man, Jesus, inhabits that story in some unique way. If I can just touch his garment, I'll be healed. She has a sense of expectation. In fact, Dale Bruner, who has a wonderful commentary on Matthew, he's a professor, was a professor at um, Whitworth College. He says that the majority, you might just say the many here in Malachi, those are my words, they touched Jesus throngingly. They're just pressing in on him from all sides. But only one, this woman, the sum here in Malachi, the, the minority, touched him needily. Some touched him throngingly. Some touched him needily. And it's the needing touch, says Bruner, that's the touch of faith. 
the needing touch. And that's the touch that gets God's help. So he says mere curiosity, social pressure, just getting close to Jesus, trying Jesus out with some luck, just showing up and going through the motions will never work. That's not the way Jesus heals us. That's the way the majority touched Jesus. Only the touch that comes in need with expectancy of healing, of freeing, of the gift of joy. These are God's gifts to us. That's the touch that gets in touch with Jesus. Only the touch that comes with expectancy. Are you expecting right now Jesus to do anything? Are you just showing up? I mean, there's a lot here today. I'm really glad you're here. Why did you come to church this morning? Are you expecting Jesus to do something with your life? That's why he's here. Uh, and all you have to do, here's how this story relates, is come to him with need. Say, Jesus, I have a need. I have a, it might be a major need. It might be a relatively minor need. Come with the need and an expectation that Jesus can do miracles with it. Jesus is a miracle worker. Uh, he can heal. He can free you. He will give you joy. He will do it. All you have to do is come to him. And that's why, just to kind of sum this all up, I am so excited this morning that we get to respond by just coming to the table together. For a lot of us, we've been doing this for a long time. You come, you, I mean, there could be no greater ritual, like rich religious ritual. You rip a piece of bread, dip it in the juice, you go back to your seat. Done. Next month. That's been my experience of this table for many years. And so I'm excited this morning that we can come with a greater sense of expectancy and connect our need, whatever need you bring this morning, with the gift that is here. This bread, this juice, Jesus promises to transform them in your life as you just take them in and say, Jesus, will you live through me? Will you live in me? Will you change whatever's going on in my life? Make much of what's, what's been broken. Uh, what's up, Seth? Welcome back, bud. <laughs> it's good. I'll invite the worship team up since Andrew's coming up. Make much of this, Jesus. That's my prayer for us this morning. So whether you're kind of a longtime follower of Jesus and this is like, yeah, I've been there uh, and I haven't expected anything. Or this is like, I've never come to this table. And this would be your first time just coming to this table and you're not sure what to expect. Oh. I pray for all of us, and I'll just pray now that, Jesus, would you, would you pray with me? Jesus, would you transform what we've brought to this table, juice, bread? Would you transform it into the, the gifts of your body and blood for us, broken, poured out, so that we, with expectation, might receive what you have for us, healing, freedom, and joy. We declare that these gifts are available, God. Um, so help us to receive them. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.